Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. How are you, Dave? I'm doing great. Uh, first haircut in three months. Um, great, great podcast talk. Haircuts. It is, it yeah, yeah. For all those people that are um, looking at the uh, visual of the podcast and not listening, uh, it's just trimmed. It looks good, feels good, summer. But yeah, life is good here. It's uh, undeserved to feel blessed uh, to be in Texas. So uh, once again, you'll probably hear a lot of that from me over these upcoming weeks. Uh, anyway, but all good. How about yourself? Yeah, we're making progress here. You know, it's been a positive week in terms of developments on the coronavirus. And actually, this is the first week our church is going to be able to meet again. So not everybody, every service, but that's a big step forward. It's been a long time coming. As recently as last week, they could have no more than 10 people inside. Now it's 50. So that's a big help. And so that's just one of those signs that life is beginning to move toward normalcy, though we're certainly far from that. And there's obviously still a lot of trouble and suffering around. Well, last week, we looked at racism, policing, and revolution in light of the killing of George Floyd and all that had followed. This week, we're going to expand on that conversation by looking at the pursuit of justice based on the idea of moving from protest to politics. And we're going to try to understand what it takes to turn the energy of a protest movement into concrete political action. And we can't do that in one podcast, we've decided. We're looking at this over several weeks. So today we're going to focus our attention on some principles for doing that, look at some of the key readings that we think will help us understand that historically and how best to do that. And we're going to begin with some headlines that focus on what seems to be the policy proposal that has the most energy behind it, maybe not the most political support in terms of national leaders, but the most energy behind it is the policy proposal to defund the police. And so perhaps the the center of this, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, put a post up on their website May 30th, says, we call for a national defunding of police. We demand investment in our communities and the resources to ensure black people not only survive, but thrive. If you're with us, add your name to the petition right now and help us spread the word. So that was a couple of weeks ago, and, and that movement certainly gained some momentum and energy over the last few weeks as developments have unfolded and as people have been looking for proposals to come out of this. Uh, Byron York, writing at the Washington Examiner, his kind of regular column there, asked the question of whether anyone knows exactly what defunding the police means. And it's one of the things, if you look at that petition at the Black Lives Matter website, there's not a lot of detail. Uh, There's a suggestion there, obviously, in the second sentence that it involves investment. It involves transferring funds. That was something that was promised by the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, in the last week. Defund the police sounds like abolish the police. And yet there's a lot of nuance that apparently is meant to go along with that, at least in some versions of what defund the police means. On the other hand, in Minneapolis, we have a movement uh, announced by the city council there to, quote, dismantle the police force. And it was the president of that council, Lisa Bender, who announced that on June 4th. She says, we're going to dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department 
and replace it with a transformative new model of public safety. Now, meanwhile, in Seattle, we have in the last few days, the emergence of Chaz. Now, I know, Dave, you've gone by the nickname Chaz at certain points, uh, but that's not what we're talking about here. This is the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. The Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. And there's a USA Today article here that, that kind of summarizes what's going on in Seattle, if you haven't been following this closely. It begins this way. In Seattle, a group of peaceful protesters have cornered off several city blocks and established the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, a sort of protest haven where artists paint murals, speakers discuss topics of racial equity, snacks are handed out for free, and virtually no police are in sight. Now, the article continues, President Donald Trump has branded the protest society as a group of ugly anarchists and domestic terrorists. But the city's mayor says Trump doesn't get it. It's a group of people gathering lawfully and exercising their First Amendment right of free speech, says Mayor Jenny Durkin. It is patriotism, Durkin added. The group gathered, here's the kicker, after Seattle police abandoned a precinct in the Capitol Hill neighborhood on Monday and effectively handed the area over to the protesters they had clashed with for days. According to media reports from around the area, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, or CHAZ, has a festival-like energy where people are peacefully gathering and discussing how to better the world in an experiment of a society without police amid calls around the country to defund departments. Wide range of conversation here, defund the police, abolish the police, establish autonomous zones in Seattle. What do you make of all that, Dave? Well, some people say that um, I have uh, something that emanates from me that has a festival-like atmosphere. So I've always noticed that around you. There's kind of a always party. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of that. But I I may return to Chaz as a nickname, depending on how Chaz goes, whether, you know, free water bottles and and all the rest actually uh, produces the brave new world that uh, some of its supporters uh, hope uh, it, it does. I think in all seriousness that a lot of what we're discussing here uh, in these headlines has to do with this artifice, which is uh, police policing and um, the degree to which policing works in a liberal democratic society and and doesn't work. Uh, But it also has to do with human nature and uh, the, the relationship between human nature and human artifice. If you believe that human nature is capable of living without law enforcement, if you believe that human nature left unto its own or retrained or reeducated or reimagining a new world uh, can make that new world, then perhaps you'd go down that road of believing that you ought to um, dismantle rather than uh, defund or move forward uh, beyond, excuse me, defunding to dismantling uh, the police. Uh, If, however, uh, you believe that uh, there'd be challenges uh, with that approach, then you you probably have a different notion of human nature. So uh, here, you know, just a a plug for political philosophy, a plug for the questions that are asked in our classrooms. What can we expect of humankind? What can we expect of the human condition? And there are a great variety of answers on this, ancient, medieval, and modern. Uh, uh, Two of the modern that come to mind on this question would be Thomas Hobbes' call for a Leviathanic state because we can't expect human beings to do more than to preserve themselves. Uh, and then you have the, the um, more palatable uh, liberal democratic approach of John Locke that suggests that uh, 
most of us uh, left unto ourselves can work, uh, can use our reason to labor within nature and to make uh, life, uh, as one philosopher has, has said, the joyless quest for joy. Uh, these protesters um, suggesting that this brave new world can be created, I think go one step further than Hobbes and Locke. Uh, they're suggesting, like, like many uh, progressives, that if you completely remove the liberal democratic artifice that's been placed upon the world and you replace it with a clear sense of what justice is, then you will have people living in harmony uh, with one another. Uh, so that's been uh, the promise or hope of many progressives over the years. You just wonder how well that's going to work, uh, given that there is such a thing as human nature and there is a tendency to criminal activity, not among all, but what do you do when that happens? What do you do when crime happens in one of these places would be my question, Matt. Yeah, and it's a striking juxtaposition of the paragraph that says this all began when the police abandoned the area after having clashed with protesters for days. And so the suggestion that we can get beyond violence uh, seems like a difficult one to justify based upon the very experience that led to the creation of this zone. Well, we'll see how that develops. Uh, it's clear that political leaders are not wanting at least to embrace the slogan, defund the police. We know we're in an election year, and so there's definitely some political calibrating going on here. Uh, Joe Biden has rejected calls for defunding the police. Barry Sanders says he actually thinks we ought to spend more money for the police, not, not for policing per se, but for police salaries and education. The Democratic Party proposal, uh, summarized in a CNN article, includes things like a national registry for police misconduct and uh, mandatory racial bias training, uh, training about rights and responsibilities concerning intervention and how do you de-escalate situations, things of this sort, and also mandatory body cameras, so limitations on the kind of equipment that state and local police officers can have, so some of the more military-style weaponry, etc. What's striking is that uh, Tim Scott, who's kind of leading the charge on this on the Republican side in the Senate, has proposed uh, a bill that's, or at least has proposed ideas that are strikingly similar. There's, there's points of difference, no doubt, but the list of items that are on his, his list overlap very heavily with the list of items on the Democratic list. Now, all this then raises the question of, of where is this going to land from a policy standpoint. And an interesting article in the New Republic this week from Osita Wunevu, who argues in essence that what's happened over six years of the Black Lives Matter movement is that it has moved out of the fringes of politics and into the mainstream. Now, this is how the article concludes. It's unlikely that many national figures or candidates in swing districts will embrace dismantling law enforcement as we know it anytime soon. But politicians in Democrat-controlled cities are already being forced by activists to consider policies more ambitious than standard reform proposals. As is well known by now, a majority of the Minneapolis City Council have signaled their intention to disband the police department. It's unclear what concrete measure the city will enact as a replacement. The country will follow whatever comes next with great interest. But, and here's the final line, but abolitionists can already claim an important victory, and there are likely more to come. 
you think there's been a, a permanent political shift on this, Dave, in the aftermath of recent events? I don't know if it's a permanent political shift, but I think that there's definitely been a shift in the last six to eight to 10 years on these issues. I think some of that shift is welcomed. I think a shift that takes a look at criminal justice reform, takes a look at policing, uh, takes a look at the issues so that um, it turns to those common parts of the Democratic and Republican plan that might be agreed upon in the next week or two. That's all, that's all good, but it's not the shift or winning the argument that will make the difference here. And I don't think that winning, like we said last week, winning a presidential election or winning the Congress is what should matter if we all care about this issue and we want to, uh, we want racial tensions to decrease and we want to come together for a common good. So I, I, I say that because if, if it's simply all about police reform, then the suggestion is we do all of these things and then everything will be, will be right. And I'm not sure that that's the case. And, and one person I turned to this week, who I've turned to multiple times on the question of race relations and so on, is Shelby Steele, the Hoover uh, Institute scholar. And uh, in an, one interview this week, he said something uh, very interesting in looking at police reform. He said, I'm for police reform. Everyone's for police reform. But these protests come and go, and they never seem to, to lead to anything permanent. Um, there's a type of politics, he argues, that comes out of the 1960s, where victimization is cried and a demand for a larger society is made. But at the end of the day, no, no one does anything serious to get at the heart of what's going on uh, in uh, these communities. So um, he says at the end of this piece that it's been 50 or 60 years since we passed the Civil Rights Book but we're worse off in many socioeconomic categories than we were 60 years ago. And um, he says, I don't blame that in time and I understand why it happened and the kind of liberalism that came in and really took over our fate, took it away from us. White America in many ways did that and they needed it for their own reasons. White America live under the accusation that they're racist. They need to prove that they're not racist. In order to prove that you're not racist, you need to take over the fate of black people and say, go with us. We'll engineer you into the future. We'll engineer you into equality. But he goes on to say, life doesn't work like that. We have to engineer ourselves, period. There is no other way unless you can rewrite the rules of the human condition. There the human condition pops up once again. There is no circumstance in history where people can, no matter how much guilt they have over the oppressive majority, change the lives of those majority. Steele here, I think, asks us kind of some basic questions. We, we tend to believe, uh, as people who are involved in policy and politics, that a protest is a good thing. And, and it often is when you're protesting against an injustice. But we then tend to believe that we have the tools at our disposal, our artifice, to change things. Uh, and that we have the power um, to, as Steele says, engineer a certain result. And, and what Steele is suggesting here is that that result that we want best properly engineered by the people themselves who are affected uh, by these things that are going on in their community. So, I, I mean, we want to turn towards justice and we want to be kind and charitable to people who want to get there, but we also should ask, are the arguments they're making, are the policies that they're forwarding actually going to get us to the place where we want to go? Yeah, I think that's one of the big challenges that we want to take up in all this because there has to be room for policy dispute under overarching principles that one has in common. And the fact that one differs on policy can't immediately bring into question 
whether one agrees in principle. Right? You have to be able to say, no, I know we both will the good. We both actually love justice, and yet we disagree on the means to pursuing it. And we may not disagree forever. We may find that we can reach some consensus, that we can work through some deliberate process where we actually persuade each other, where we find more wisdom through conversation than we had at the beginning of all this. One of the challenges of a time where passions have been elevated is that it's difficult to deliberate. It's difficult to explore nuance, to, to reflect wisely together. And there's a great need for that, all the more where you have histories of injustice, histories of misunderstanding, histories of tension, suspicion, right? All these things that, that make the process more difficult. That's the place where we need passion least, right? The passion can drive us, and sometimes we need the passion, right? To drive us to actually appreciate the injustice. My favorite line in Frederick Douglass's What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, after he's made mockery of the idea of an escaped slave orator statesman, Douglas, defending the proposition that slavery is wrong, right? How absurd would it be for him to go up there and work through the propositions? We don't need that, right? The problem is not that people don't know slavery is wrong. They don't feel that slavery is wrong, that they have to have their conscience pricked in a way that hasn't happened, they, they've got the intellectual argument down. So there's a place for passion that pricks the conscience, that leads one to appreciate in a more fundamental way an injustice, especially an injustice suffered by somebody other than you. We all feel our own injustices very quickly, very well. No problem on that. But we have a hard time feeling the injustice of others. And so we need something to trigger that. But once that's been triggered, we have to then find a way to channel that into a discussion that can lead through wisdom ultimately to measures that advance the cause of justice with, with the expectation, given all we know and have said about human nature, that we're not going to be able to engineer some single policy that's going to fix the human heart. And whatever you do about policing, you're still going to have people that want their stuff and they want your stuff too. And you're still going to have violence where you ought to have conversation and all the rest. So we're not going to be able to work through the problems that essentially define human conflict simply by trying to force people into some consensus that doesn't exist or, or suggest that to disagree on my favorite policy is to show bad faith or a lack of attachment to the real cause of justice. Yeah, this uh, moves nicely to the first of my required readings for this week, which is Jefferson's first inaugural, where he says famously, states famously that, and this is very important, maybe the most important line of this podcast, that every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. I'll say it again. Every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. That is, unless you make every difference of opinion 
a difference of principle. That is, if you make every difference of how do we get to that which we aspire to, a difference of principle, and you say, you actually are not, you're not aspiring to what I'm aspiring to. You don't believe in the same justice uh, that I believe in. In fact, you're unjust. In fact, uh, you're wrong because you won't share in the same means. You won't share in the same argument that I make. You won't cave in to the demands that I'm making of you and speak in the way that I'm telling you you should speak or write in a way that I'm telling you that you should write. Um, so um, this forgetting that all can agree on the principle of human equality and yet still have different opinions on how to actualize it. So Jefferson writes, this is, if you haven't read the first inaugural, you know, you've probably read a couple lines of it or remember the, the part where he says, we are all Republicans, we are all a federalist, uh, but he, he talks about the, the difference of opinion that, that was very present in the first 15, 20 years of the American founding. Here you had at least two foundings there, a declarational founding and then a constitutional founding 11 years uh, thereafter. And there were many disagreements that certainly upset uh, a good group of people on either side and led people to call each other names. But if it's true, as he says, that we are all Republicans and we are all Federalists, that we will not want to dissolve the Union or change its Republican form, let us do what? Let us figure out how we can work together to achieve that flourishing that we want. Uh, and Jefferson's words were true in 1800. Uh, they're as true in 2020. Uh, we need to not think that because I believe in a different way to get to that goal, that I don't believe in that same goal as you. And let me give a second uh, reading uh, for this week that I think kind of works hand in hand with what Jefferson's arguing. And it's the argument uh, that Bayard Rustin makes in the 1960s when he writes that uh, we as African-Americans and those supporting uh, civil rights, we have to learn how to move from protest to politics. How do you move from protest to politics? So how do you rightfully protest with passion, as you just mentioned, and then do what? And then turn it into a type of politics where there is give and take, and you can infer, affirm with another who may disagree with you a little bit uh, on, on some sort of means that get you both to where you want to go. So I'll just quickly read some key passages from this great essay by Rustin. One of the things that he argues is, what is the value of winning access to public accommodations for those who lack money to use them? The minute the movement faced this question, it was compelled to expand its vision beyond race relations to economic relations, including the role of education in modern society. And what also became clear is that all these interrelated problems, by their very nature, are not soluble by private voluntary efforts, but require government action or politics. So here Rustin wants to work towards an artifice. But to work towards an artifice, right, you have to take that civil rights movement or protest movement, he argues, and turn it into a full-fledged social movement, concerned with removing barriers to full opportunity, but also achieving the fact of equality. So I think that uh, we could do well uh, to, to read uh, both Jefferson's uh, first inaugural and to read what Rustin is suggesting in, in taking protest and, and turning it uh, toward the public good. But uh, in both cases, both in Jefferson's case uh, and Rustin's case, the, the key is what? The necessity of politics, coalition building, and not blaming the person who disagrees with you for not wanting a better justice for all. So Jefferson's giving his speech 
after a very difficult campaign, we're probably entering into one. I mean, in some ways we've been in the middle of it, but I think it's about to increase its intensity. And that campaign in 1800 style was probably just as ugly as our campaign in 2020 is going to be the name calling and the accusations and all the rest. And I find it striking after it's all done as he's trying to bring the nation together. And obviously that's, that's the challenge for any president elected in a controversial election with lots of energy and passion. You then have to somehow transition to being president of the United States in, in more than a merely figurative sense. You have to actually be the president of the nation. And so he says, let us then, fellow citizens, unite with one heart and one mind. Let us restore to social intercourse that harmony and affection without which liberty and even life itself are but dreary things. This is one of the challenges we face in our politics today. We never do that, right? We, because we never end the campaign. The campaign for this office ends, obviously, we'll have election day in November, but the next campaign has already begun. And it may not even be a campaign for an office, but it's a cause, it's a vision, it's some kind of political project. And as life becomes politics, and there's no part of life that's separated from politics, we never get a chance to catch our breath and restore to social intercourse that harmony and affection without which liberty and even life itself are but dreary things. That's a great, that's a great description, dreary things, right? You have a nice dreary day you know what that's like that's that's life when there's never a break from political combat where you can never restore that friendship that was perhaps temporarily strained by a political divide but doesn't have to be only about politics well uh, here very important and so uh, some of our listening audience may have said well you just said uh, that rustin argues that we need to move from protest to politics yes that is true but protest is a means, as is politics a means. And it's a means to peace, uh, and a peace that we all aspire to. Now, we may have different definitions of what that peace is, but if there is no definition of peace, if there's no peace at the end of the day, and all politics is, is just war after war after war, so that there is no peace, then there will never be a common good that we can equally enjoy. There'll never be a common justice that we can equally enjoy. They'll just be total victor uh, and total defeated, uh, but not a democratic republic, which is what we aspire to uh, have in this country. Yeah, I think you know Rustin's piece is, is really important historically, 1965. So just the year after the passage of the Monumental Civil Rights Act of 1964. And it's kind of a natural point for leaders like Rustin in the civil rights movement to be thinking about, well, what's, what's the next step? Because if you go back to Brown versus Board of Education, 1954, we had a decade of really remarkable legal progress. And the question is, what, what, what comes next? Are there more laws to be passed? Uh, and if there are, what kinds of laws? And Rustin's argument is that those laws are primarily laws that concern economic things, that it's a new kind of argument that's going to have to be made. And he's calling for really a, a reconstruction of the American economy. He doesn't try to minimize the significance. He calls it revolution. Uh, and yet he's a pacifist. He doesn't mean violent revolution, but, but revolutionary in the sense that it would produce a life very different from the one that we lived up until this point. Now, on the other hand, Shelby Steele, who you just quoted, 
right, who's studying the same problems 50 years later, comes to an entirely different conclusion about the best path forward. So what do you do with that? Well, if we take Jefferson's advice, you say, well, okay, let's, let's recognize we have two people of good faith who are going to have to work to reason it through. And, and one of them may win the argument this day and a different one win the argument that day. And neither of them will probably be happy with the actual political result. That there has to be room for that debate among people of good faith without the immediate questioning of motives, without the immediate challenging, well, you're not really sincere if you don't adopt my particular vision of the pathway to justice. Yeah, I think also, Matt, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for both of them, I, but I, I would say that uh, I am convinced in reading their writings that both of them uh, would give a careful reading of each other. Uh, both of them would, would, would pay that charitable respect to the argument being made to the other, and both would make, pay the most ultimate charitable respect, and that is, while they may disagree with one another on how to get there, that they wouldn't use a slogan to defame the other. Uh, they would suggest an alternative. They would be probably more willing to engage in an argument with one another, realizing that that argument, that debate, that dialectic uh, might lead people listening to become better citizens. And that's what we need today. And we don't see that much of it in our uh, political discourse in 2020. And it's one of the challenges that surrounds the use of the phrase Black Lives Matter. So really, we have three different ways in which that phrase is used. One is as an ethical principle, that every person of goodwill ought to unquestionably affirm. Secondly, as a political phrase. And then thirdly, as an organization. And so the difficulty is that if to believe the ethical principle requires you to affirm all that the organization affirms, well, then we're going to have a hard time looking at people with charity when we might come to a different conclusion about the best pathway forward on policing. If you look at the Black Lives Matter website and you look at the things that they believe, they have controversial views on a number of questions that go beyond civil rights, or at least go beyond the specific questions surrounding the case of George Floyd and policing. They've got views on gender and other topics that are matters of public debate that a person could very easily dissent from without in any way dissenting from the ethical proposition that Black Lives Matter. And so again, this is, this is the challenge of our politics. Because we do politics 140 or 280 characters at a time, and we have the social media mob ready to pounce whenever it looks like somebody's broken outside the acceptable boundaries, we don't actually explore the differences, right? The differences that we're required to really appreciate when someone speaks. Are they actually saying something that is grossly offensive? Are they, are they actually dissenting from an ethical proposition that I believe is fundamental? Or are they like, is very, very common in political life, simply dissenting from political program that is a matter of controversy, a matter of reasonable debate, and one that can quite fairly be criticized and against which there might be good arguments brought to bear that could perhaps even be persuasive to people 
in the Black Lives Matter organization. They may in fact change what they believe in response to argument, right? This happens to party platforms all the time. Organizations change their visions. Why? Because people persuade them. So there can't be one doctrinaire position on every single question, even while you have the universal affirmation, or at least we expect the universal affirmation of the ethical proposition that Black Lives Matter. Yeah, we want to, and I just close this segment uh, by saying, to turn back to Jefferson's inaugural, we definitely want, and we're involved in politics, we want to win the argument. And Jefferson said, the will of the majority is in all cases to prevail, but that will to be rightful must be reasonable. So what we'd hope for in our politics is not simply that you'd win an election, but that you'd win over a majority reasonably. Uh, And I think to to win over a majority reasonably takes charity for the other side, for the other argument. And I I hope that as we move forward in the second and third discussion in the next two weeks on pursuing justice, that we'll see some of the limitations that are there in trying to pursue uh, winning over a reasonable majority and, and some of the impediments that are there as well. Yeah, just a few concluding thoughts on some biblical wisdom that might guide us as we look forward to that further conversation. You know, when I think about issues of justice, um, the book that comes to my mind especially is is Amos. And the opening chapters of Amos, this really powerful indictment of the injustices of the nations that surround Judah and Israel, and then Judah, and then finally Israel. And you can imagine them rah, rah, yeah, that's right. Go after those Syrians, go after those Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites. Yeah, let's, let's talk about all their injustices. And then the lens gets turned on the covenant people of God. And, and the case against them is worse. They're worse. And what is it that God's concerned about? He's concerned about gross disregard for human life, violating faith with others, casting off pity, attacks on the weak, religious hypocrisy, all kinds of things, so many of them, the kinds of things that, that we're talking about, right? just, just the kind of exploitation of the weak and imposition of force in immoral ways that, that troubles, rightly troubles so many. So you've got to see the, the need for justice and then to pursue the course of justice in light of the Romans 3 principle that we can't do evil that good may come. And so we're going to have to think about how do I pursue justice, which requires me to love my neighbor as myself by loving my neighbor as myself? How do I achieve that end by the same means? How do I apply the golden rule? How do I evaluate the words and ideas of others the way that I would want my words and ideas to be evaluated? How do I not bear false witness about others, making unfounded accusations about others, carefully sift evidence rather than immediately make judgments that are unwarranted by the evidence that's actually before me. There's a lot more to talk about there. We've got, thankfully, a couple more weeks to unfold this. Now, I know you've got some reading in advance of our next podcast. This is a first for us on this podcast reading assigned in advance, but I know it's a little longer piece. You want to give him a chance to spend some time with it. 
Yeah, it's a good 30-minute read, but uh, I think that it's well well worth the read for everyone. I, I just came up about a day or two ago. It's in the journal National Affairs, and the title of the piece is called The, the Erosion of Deep Literacy, and it's written by Adam Garfunkel, and it's just a really interesting take on how changes in technology, science, uh, and literacy change the way that public discourse works by, by changing the attention that we can pay uh, to arguments. Uh, how can you be charitable to another if you don't listen to another or read another fully? So um, it's, it's one of those uh, essays that you read and uh, it makes you, uh, makes you fear, uh, makes you become more pessimistic. Uh, but it's one of those essays too that when you read it, you say, okay, well, this may be a pathway forward uh, to try to overcome some of the things that are getting in the way of good public discourse. So Erosion of Deep Literacy by Adam Garfunkel and National Affairs. And we'll have that link up on our, our site. As we like to do, we're going to try to end the show with a couple of lighter segments. And first, we're going to open the grade book as we do each week, this time focusing on ad campaigns from the coronavirus era. You probably noticed the first few weeks of things in March, all the ads looked like all the old ads, right? Everybody was still in big groups doing their thing. And then all of a sudden it started to change, right? Then every ad started taking into account the reality that people were living in. And so we're just, we picked out a couple of commercials we're just gonna play and grade these as an attempt to try to do advertising in the era of COVID-19. So here's our first, this is a, this is a Tide commercial. To America's frontline responders, Thank you. Tide Cleaners is offering free laundry services to the family of frontline responders. Visit hope.tidecleaners.com to learn more. All right, Dave. So free laundry service. Thank you. What do you make of that as a COVID-19 era ad? I'd give it a B. Uh, I think that uh, you probably don't have that much time if you're trying to save the lives of another. So, so that's good. I, I do find the overall... Uh, uh, virtue signaling within these commercials to be somewhat problematic. Everyone's trying to get their angle as to why you should buy Tide. Uh, but I, I think that uh, it's just kind of, yeah, you see these commercials over and over again. Um, I think the intention in part to celebrate those who uh, put their lives on the line is good, but to make money off of it seems to be a little bit, uh, yeah. It's, it's a little challenging, right? Right. I mean, it's hard to figure out how, how do you do advertisements, to be fair, right? This is a difficult error to try to figure out how, how do I do every, sort of pretend nothing's happening that doesn't seem right. And, and yet the transition from thank you, frontline workers, please buy our stuff, always going to be awkward. You know, they're at least doing something positive. So it's not just tied at the end, but at least they're trying to contribute to the cause in some significant way. So yeah, I, th I think B is fair. All right, the second one is from Stop and Shop. So it's a local grocery store in the Northeast. Some of you may or may not have that, but they've certainly, in the areas where there's been the most impact of the coronavirus. I want to know that my children are going to be safe. Try to minimize the amount of people that are leaving your home. Please keep your distance at least six feet away. Please wear a mask. All these little things have an effect. This will help you, everyone in your community, and this helps the country, and this is helping the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What do you think about that one, Dave? I think it's really helping the universe. I mean, I go one step further than your community, the world, just it's, it's helping just everything, everything that ever was, it's helping. Uh, you know, uh, 
I think this is where, you know, these commercials tend to go a little bit too far. Uh, they tend to be a little too schoolmarmish. So you know, probably I'm going to give this one a C minus. Um, uh, when, when virtue signaling becomes kind of a slogan that, that doesn't really make sense at the end of the day, then it kind of loses its creed in my eyes. Yeah, not, not great to feel like you're being told what to do by your local supermarket. You appreciate the angle of thank you, the idea that they're wanting to thank the community for caring for the workers there, all the people in the commercial or people that work at Stop and Shop, presumably. But, but there is that little bit of a paternalistic element to it that maybe cuts the wrong way. Certainly, I'm sure for those of you in Texas, that especially grates. We here in New York don't mind being told what to do quite so much. And so it may not be quite as big of an issue for the Northeast where Stop and Shop's located. But listen, Matt, you know I'm from New England, you know I'm a Patriots fan, and you know that I would never stop, I'd never shop at Stop and Shop. <laughs> mock it basket all the way. It's gotta <laughs> be mock it basket. <laughs> Very good, well that's, that's an important caveat. So maybe if you're a Stop and Shop fan out there, you might take that into consideration when you judge, when you rejudge uh, Dave's grade there. C minus may be influenced by his sports allegiances more than by the commercial itself. I'm going to give it a C, a little higher, but, but still a little problematic. Now, in the midst of all this, somebody rather cleverly on YouTube noticed that pretty much all the commercials are the same. There's about a three-minute, 40-second compilation, must be 50 different ads, called Every COVID-19 Commercial is Exactly the Same. Same kind of solo, mellow piano music. Lots of words like together, thank you, and these challenging times and all the rest. So most people are kind of going the same way. There's a certain template for this. It's the safe way to go, obviously. Whether we give it a high grade or not, you're not going to have people who are demanding the jobs of CEOs and advertising execs over ads like these. But some people take, take more risks. And so this one, this one, it's not a... It's not a TV ad or a radio ad, but just kind of a headline. But this one kind of caught my eye as, as a little more of a risky approach, but maybe you can appreciate that. So here, Arby's says, in these uncertain times, we have the meats, right? So they, they, we have the meats, but then let's just kind of fit in the COVID-19 era with that. In these uncertain times, we have the meats. A plus, A plus, love it. Yeah. yeah. Now, to be fair, the A plus actually has to go to the Babylon B. That's the, that's the hidden truth there. Arby's didn't actually do that. So if you're ready to start the letter campaign, and you want to call for the CEO and the ad exec, please don't do that. I hope you didn't turn off the podcast the minute we said that and start firing off letters and tweets. It was a joke. Okay. It was a Babylon B joke. I think a very funny Babylon B joke. Uh, but that's satire. It's okay. Do satire. And, and so, yeah, this is sort of the, the limit case here, right? Tack in these uncertain times on the front of any catchphrase and you've got your bases covered. But to be honest, right? I mean, we do need the meats. This is one of the things we're all missing in, in the Northeast. Can't get out. You can't, you can't go. Every time you see a commercial with one of those big juicy hamburgers or roast beef sandwiches, yeah, I'm craving that. One of Blacks tonight for brisket. So uh, anyone who's listening to the show, you're always welcome to come down to Canyon Lake, Texas and join us for such a meal. Sounds we have great. the meats. 
You know what, Matt? In these uncertain times, democracy in America today, that's what I have to say. (laughs) There you go. That'll be our new tagline moving forward. So our final segment is always what we call the Tocqueville's crystal ball, where we make a prediction about the week to come. And it's a little competition. We go back and forth and whoever wins gets to pick the category for the next week. So last week was our first tie. The first two weeks I won pretty clearly, let's be fair. Last week was a tie. We were, we were optimistic. We were, we were trying to project good things that would happen in the week to come. And Dave projected the further opening of the country from COVID-19, which certainly happened. I projected that the rallies and protests wouldn't lead to a big increase in cases of coronavirus. So far, that's been true, at least in New York City. So they're still down, down about 25% the last week from the previous week. So there are individual stories about people that seemingly contracted COVID-19 at those rallies or National Guardsmen who did that while they were overseeing things. But but it doesn't seem at least as yet to have caused a significant increase. We'll hope that that continues to be the case moving forward. So this week, we're going to go back to sports, one of our favorite things to talk about and to project. And since we were both actually born in England, we're going to mark the return of the Premier League on Wednesday with predictions for the two matches that are kicking off the resumption of, of the campaign. So we've got first Aston Villa at home against Sheffield United. Of course, two of the three promoted sides this year and really going in very different directions. Looks like Aston Villa is on its way back to the championship, 19th place in the table. Uh, Sheffield United, meanwhile, is the surprise team of the season, has a real possibility of, of qualifying for at least the Europa League, even, even an outside shot at the Champions League next year. So two teams motivated to win this match. Who do you have, Dave? And what's your score? I haven't won one of these yet. So uh, here's what I did this week. I spent exactly seven minutes trying to do some research on Premier League soccer. And I came up with the following, which I think will help me this week. Uh, Certainly the villains, or I should say Dean Smith's villains, are the underdogs heading to Sheffield United and playing the Blades. But they have called up Louis Berry, uh, who some call the best 16-year-old football player in England. I'm going to call for a surprise here. I'm going to say the villains are going to win away. Uh, they're going to uh, put themselves uh, out well, in a better position in terms of um, going down to the championship. Uh, and this will be the sign of things to come as the villains bring young players onto their club to try to re-energize their effort. How's that for some research? Okay, well done. Well done. I think you're talking the lingo. It's almost credible. So you got a score for us? I'm going to say I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it's going to be a draw, but a draw will be good for the villains. Uh, okay. And I'll say that I'll go even further and say uh, Louis Berry will score a goal in this debut. Yeah. So so one one draw is that what yep. you're calling? Okay. One one draw. Louis Berry scores. All right. Well, you know what? I was going to go for a draw too, but I can't say one one because I don't want to have a tie on this. So I'm going to say two two. Little they'll open things up just a little bit. We'll get uh, a goal from. I'm going to say Jack Grealish, the old captain of Aston Villa, uh, who may be moving on to greener pastures as a lot of teams attracted to him. And, and I'm sure he's not eager to go down to the championship again. So Aston Villa needs to win in order to keep Jack Grealish. I think he scores and ends up 
2-2 draw. Neither team super satisfied with the result, but neither entirely disappointed either. Okay, so well, our second... Hold well, on a second, Matt. Sorry, sorry. I will note, just so I note that I've done more research than you, that the yeah. villains have given up two goals a game. So you may have something there, but I think they're going to tighten things up. They like to play that open, attractive style, and I think they're going to tighten things up, and 1-1 uh, will be the score. Okay, all right, fair enough. Our second match... Near the top of the table, we've got Manchester City at home against Arsenal, North London's worst. Manchester City, two-time defending champions, but this year they're 25 points behind Liverpool, and they are not going to catch Liverpool. And on top of that, they may be suspended from the Champions League for the next two years, pending an appeal of their ruling against them for violating financial fair play rules. So do they have anything to play for? That's the big question. Are they, are they going to be up for this 9-10 match run to the finish? What do you think, Dave? Here I tried to cheat and contact a, a colleague who works at the same college I do, Providence Christian, and, and ask him as an Arsenal fan whether Arsenal had a chance. I, I did this at about uh, three minutes prior to going on the podcast he still hasn't responded to me, so punishment for not um, uh, replying to my reaching out and giving me an, an inside view of, of Arsenal. I'm going I'm to say Man City still takes it. All right, and you have a score for us? I'm going to say 2-0. 2-0. 2-0. Oh, no. Nicely nil. Okay. Nice. Well, I'm a Tottenham fan because I was born in North London, just a short distance from White Hart Lane, and so to love Tottenham is to hate Arsenal. And so I'm naturally going to – be pulling for Manchester City and 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 why not in a, in a match like this? So I'm going to say three uh, one. I think Arsenal probably scores maybe late, meaningless goal, but but three one Manchester City sees it through. And even though there's almost mathematically no chance for them to catch Liverpool, I think they still have enough to beat North London's worst. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today's show. Thank you for being with us. As always, don't forget you can listen, review, and subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And certainly invite you to join us again next week as we talk more about the pursuit of justice.